Today's reading is from Ezra chapter 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings from the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, every one whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithrandith, the treasurer, who counted them out to Shezbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and silver were 5,400. All these did Shezbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. Hear the word of the Lord. Well, the Biltmore Estate is a beautiful, impressive home in Asheville, North Carolina. If you haven't been there, you should, I say you should go. Um, it's, a, it's, it's impressive, and, and you'll, be, you'll be struck by the beauty and, and, uh, and accomplishment of, it, of the house. So George Washington Vanderbilt II, you know, if, with a name like that, you better do something impressive with your life. George Washington Vanderbilt II. So in the late 1800s, he inherited a, a part of the family fortune, part of the Vanderbilt fortune, not all of it, but part of it, and uh, decided he would build a summer home, a mountain summer home. And so that became the Biltmore Estates. At the time, the largest private residence in the world. And then he bought, along with uh, the, the uh, land for just the house, 125,000 acres of Western Carolina. And so... At his death, 80,000 of that became the Pisgah National Forest, actually. So, fascinating story. So, it's a large place. In fact, it's three times larger than the White House. So, 150,000 square feet is, is the size of the Biltmore. 50,000 square feet is the White House, which is, that's a big house. 55,000 square feet, actually. And so, the White House had its own construction journey. So, in the 1800s uh, and into the 1900s, actually, it, it kept getting added to. And if you want to compare these houses, it's a little bit tricky. You know, maybe you think size, well, the, the Biltmore is three times larger, so it, it wins that. Or maybe you think just the, the, the value of it. You're going to put, you put a price tag on these houses, and maybe the Biltmore wins that. But if you were to ask, which one's more important? 
which of these houses is more important? Just objectively speaking, which of these is more important? Well, you'd have to say the White House because of who lives there. The President of the United States lives in the White House. Whatever you think about whoever happens to be President at any given era administration, the President's a big deal. And he lives in the White House. And he does business in the White House. The center of all of his business, actually, is the White House. So because of who lives there, that house is very important. Now I say all that to set up Ezra and Nehemiah. Because what happens in Ezra and Nehemiah is a lot of talk about a house. A house is being rebuilt. It's being added to. And it's getting back into action. It's been abandoned for 70 years, and now the people who are, the, in some ways, the rightful owners of that house return, and they blow out the cobwebs, and they put everything that's wrong right, and they start to build it once again. In fact, a hundred times in Ezra and Nehemiah, there's reference to the house, a hundred times. And these books aren't particularly long, so a hundred times is significant. A hundred references to this house, this house of the Lord, not the house of any president who is dust from dust to dust but this is the house of the lord who lives in that house well in some ways the lord lives in that house and that's why this house is the center of old testament religion because of who lives there it's the lord who lives there now god is omnipresent we know that he is everywhere all the time in all of his perfections but he also dwells in special ways in special places and until christ the temple was one of those special places now, we won't be able to make any sense of Ezra and Nehemiah unless we make a, a very quick jump. So we're going to say this, I don't know, many times in this series. But when you think of, to, to understand the temple, so we're Christians looking back on the Old Testament. So for Christians to look back in the Old Testament to, and to make any sense of the temple, we have, to, we have to know a few things from our New Testament. One is, Christ is the temple. Now, Christ is the temple now. We don't say Christ, you know, in some ways Christ isn't the temple then. But what Christ does in the New Testament, he says, is I am the temple. I am the place where God lives. I am where the presence of God is. I am the temple. And so Jesus in John chapter two made that mysterious word that we now understand. He said, destroy this temple and in three days I will build it again. And then John tells us uh, in kind of an editorial aside that he was talking about himself. He was the temple. That's what, he, that's what he meant. Destroy this body, and then three days I will be resurrected. In other words, Jesus is the temple. So in Revelation 21, it, it tells us, John, again, writing Revelation, right? tells us again, there was no temple because God was the temple. Where do we find the presence of God? With God. We go directly to God now. We don't need a building, certainly not one that we made, to find the presence of God. So that's the first jump we have to make, the second jump we have to make is that the church is the temple. We're going to do 1 Corinthians after the new year, and in chapter 3, Paul tells us that you are God's building. You plural, y'all. Y'all are God's building. Y'all are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So if you want to find out, you know, where in this vast world do we find the presence of God where his people are? And then the third one is maybe even more humbling, more mysterious, also from 1 Corinthians. Paul says, do you not know that your body, your physical body, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit 
You individually, your individual body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. That's quite a statement, isn't it? I mean, our bodies are not super impressive, and they get less impressive every day, don't they? And we're also aware of just, this is a dirty place. My body is a dirty place, isn't it? This body does dirty things. It's sinful. It's unclean. And yet, in this body, if you're a Christian, in this body, in some mysterious, glorious way, is God himself. He's inside of us. So that means when we're talking about rebuilding the house of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, we, gotta, we have to think in those ways. We're also building the church. We're building ourselves up in Christ. So we want to make that connection as we go through this. And so hopefully it affects you in that way. So this series is in Ezra and Nehemiah. So let's get, say some things to get oriented to the series. One is kind of, uh, um, well, these are all important. <laughs> so Ezra, Ezra and Nehemiah is Ezra and Nehemiah, not two books, Ezra and Nehemiah. So as you read it, you want to start with Ezra 1 and get to Nehemiah 13 and understand this is a consecutive nar- narrative. It's a consecutive narrative with different sources that have different perspectives, but it is, it is presented to us uh, as a consecutive narrative. So it's unfortunate that starting at about the 200s AD, so in the, in the Krishna era, these books were divided. Origen divided these, actually. Uh, and then since, since Origen, we've kind of approached them as if they were two distinct, distinctly separate books. But in the Hebrew Bible, they're together. And in fact, they're the last books of the Hebrew Bible. They're at the end of the Bible with Chronicles. So that's one thing we need to note. And then the other thing we need to note is, maybe you picked it up as we read chapter one, but this is, the, this is describing the history of the Israelites when they return from captivity. So they are, because of their sin, because of their unfaithfulness, they are taken to Babylon for 70 years. God prophesies that he would do that, and he does it. He threatens he would do that, and it's not, this is not God acting on a whim. He, gets, you know, he wakes up one morning, he's in a particularly bad mood, and Israel happened to say the wrong thing, and he says, forget it, you guys are going to Babylon. This is hundreds of years of appeals and threats and warnings, sending prophet after prophet after prophet, prophecy after prophecy after prophecy, and then finally, he sends them to Babylon for 70 years. But then he brings them back. And so that's what we're reading about, the rebuilding after the exile. And so these are the post-exilic books of the Old Testament because they are describing what happens after the exile, the exile. You know, there's actually a bunch of exiles in the Old Testament, but there's one that's described in terms of the exile, and that's Babylon for 70 years. And in this case, you know, returning home isn't just a matter of, you know, you know make sure you uh, notify the, the uh, USPS that you've moved, you, you know, all your mail forwarded from Babylon to Jerusalem, and, and we'll just live our lives normally like, like we were before. The, the people have been gone for 70 years. Is, like Israel's religion has totally collapsed. They have to rebuild everything. They don't just flip the lights on and kind of get back to business, open the doors, hey, let's do this again. They have to rebuild everything. And their religion is complicated. And so that's what's going on in Ezra and Nehemiah. They're rebuilding everything of value in their religion. And so rebuilding is, is, is there's physical aspects of the rebuilding, you know, the, the building of the temple, the building of the walls in Nehemiah, but much more important is the rebuilding of the nation, the people themselves, uh, restoring them to the worship as it was designed in the law of Moses. So here's an outline of Ezra and Nehemiah. 
So Ezra 1 through 6, I'm going to cover six chapters today, Lord willing. So that's rebuilding of the temple or, or temple worship. And then Ezra 7 through 10, Phil in two weeks is going to preach Ezra 7 through 10, Lord willing. That's rebuilding of the people. We'll call it rebuilding of the people 1.0. And then, it, then uh, the week after that, we'll hit, uh, well, Nehemiah we're going to take longer with. So we're going to, we're going to, I think we have eight sermons in Nehemiah. So Nehemiah 1 through 6 is about rebuilding the walls, that, that, that uh, Herculean uh, rebuilding project that, that only took 52 days. So Nehemiah 1 through 6, rebuilding the walls. And then Nehemiah 7 through 13, 3, that's rebuilding of the people 2.0. So Nehemiah has its own set of reforms, uh, and Ezra is actually involved with that as well. And then you get to the end, 13, 4 to 31. Nehemiah 13, 4 to 31, and we're calling that a coda, this now and not yet. Because what you see in Ezra and Nehemiah is this, it's kind of like a roller coaster. Well, except that the first hill isn't the biggest. Uh, I guess in most roller coasters, the first hill has to be the biggest because of gravity and all that stuff, whatever. Uh, <laughs> but in Nehemiah, you get, Ezra and Nehemiah, you get this thing where you get to, you, you're, you're ascending and you get to this peak and then you kind of decline because some things have to be dealt with. And then you ascend again and you get to an even higher peak and then things have to be dealt with, I and mean, you have to get serious again. And then, actually, the book doesn't end on a peak. It ends, a, it ends kind of on a decline, or maybe sort of at the bottom, a slight uptick. So this, this up and down captures reality, doesn't it? That's reality for us. Yes, sometimes we have these great seasons of revival, and then the next year is just terrible. We just got distracted and busy. We, we forgot to read our Bible for three weeks, and then, boy, it just seemed like everything just collapsed. That's life, this now and not yet. Now we experience something very powerful and yet we get distracted, we get sinful, we, get, we lose our way somehow and then we're, we're back to kind of rebuilding where we were. So we recognize we're not yet there. One day we will be perfect, sinless. Not perfect in the sense of Christ is perfect, you know, fully glorious in all of his attributes, but we will be sinless. And, and at that point, you know, that's, that's the, the now we're waiting for, but we have not yet experienced that. And so we'll see that dynamic in Ezra and Nehemiah as we work through this, through this book. So today, chapters one through six, three points, the decree of Cyrus and the beginning of the work, and that's the first three chapters, and then the, unop- the opposition to the work and God's response, Ezra four and five, and then the dedication of the temple and the partial completion of the work in Ezra 6. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for not just the fact of the gospel, but your desire that we actually understand the gospel. Thank you, Lord, that you, who is the ruler of heaven and earth, who is controlling the the orbits of planets and even galaxies, you said this people this morning need reminders of grace. This people this morning needs to hear once again grace and peace. Grace and peace. Thank you, Lord, that you, you saw fit to remind us again that we can, we who are brokenhearted, Thank you, Lord.
I knew I should have mentioned this. Thank you, Lord, that you want us to know that we who are brokenhearted can, we can pray and you hear us. You hear us. You, so exalted, infinite, majestic, on a throne we can't possibly comprehend. And yet you, Lord, want, to, want us to pray to you. Lord, we, every day we give you reasons to turn us away, and yet you, you just said grace and peace, grace and peace, grace and peace to us. Thank you, Lord, for that. So I pray that we would, we would just hear what you want us to hear from Ezra and Nehemiah. Do work in us, in our church, through these books. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So number one, the decree of Cyrus and the beginning of the work. At this point, we're in 538 BC or so. So Cyrus, the Persian king, has come to power. He's conquered all the people he needs to conquer to become an an ancient uh, king. And he's the one God uses to accomplish his purposes. But why, why then? Why that year? Why, why wasn't it 10 years earlier, 20 years earlier? Why wasn't it 10 years later or 20 years later? Well, the reason is in verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Jeremiah in Jeremiah 25 and in Jeremiah 29 makes very specific reference to Israel going into captivity for 70 years. Not 90, not 50, 70 years. You're going to go into captivity, that is true, but in 70 years, I will bring you back. And so why, why is it in the, in the reign of Cyrus? Well, there's some practical reasons why his, his policy toward, toward those he conquered was a gracious policy, so he would actually allow you to stay in your land, uh, when he, even though you were you were subject to him, and so you would you would pay your taxes like like any good Persian would, but he would let you stay in your land and and, and in some ways function as you were before, with him as your king, and so once Cyrus comes into power, he he institutes that that policy, and so he sends the Israelites back to their land. So that's why now to fulfill the prophecy that was spoken by Jeremiah, to fulfill his own word. And how does he do it? How does the Lord accomplish this tremendous feat? You know, these people are, they're not, they're not the rich and famous, the aristocrats in Babylon. They're the slaves. They're the working class. Every once in a while, a few of them, one or two of them, you know, we know Daniel pops up into the, into the higher uh, places of authority and ruling. But as a, as a people, as a as a class, you might say, the Jews were not the elite. They were the despised. And so for them to have any kind of favor with the king, well, it's going to take a work of the Lord. And so it's the Lord who begins the work. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. It wasn't just Cyrus who had this brilliant original idea. It was the Lord who said, okay, now it's time. Therefore, boom, I'm going to stir your heart 
And you're going to get an idea, and then you're going to set it into motion. And so he writes this decree, and we want to hear this decree because it, it, it accents what we're talking about, which is this building of the house of the Lord. Again, these are Cyrus's words, a Persian king. There's, there's, no, there's no hint that he's, he's some kind of secret Jew or anything like that. This is a Persian king. And so Cyrus, in verse 2 through 4, says, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. That's an interesting little phrase, isn't it? He's awesome and powerful and amazing, but he's also the God who is in Jerusalem. Just a little hint there that we're not sure of Cyrus' faith, right? He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with, it, with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. What is... What are the, what are the, what are the uh, exiles being sent to do? They're being sent specifically to rebuild the house of God, to rebuild the worship of Israel. So the cities and, and repopulating the city, or sorry, the walls, the walls around the city and then repopulating the, the, the city itself, the city of Jerusalem itself, that's all work that's gonna have to happen in addition to that. But the central work that's happening here is the rebuilding of the temple. That's what the captives are sent to rebuild. And so he gives them, and once again, you know, we saw this with Pharaoh, and we saw, uh, uh, and once again, God's people aren't sent empty-handed. They're sent with treasure. A pagan king rises up, and he gives them treasure for the worship of the Lord. And so in this case, it's actually treasure that was stolen from, uh, from the Israelites earlier from the temple. It's given back to them seven years later. Take this for the worship of the Lord. But we should note verse five. So the Lord stirred the heart of Cyrus. And then in verse five, then rose up the heads of the, of the father's houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred. So he's not just stirring the heart of a, of a pagan king. He's also stirring the heart of his own people to be, to be among those who return. Not everyone returns. Some people stay back, as we'll see. But he does stir up tens of thousands of people to return to Jerusalem. So then we get to Ezra 2, and you get a long list of people. These are the exiles, those who return, and we, we read that and we think, why, Lord, why me? Why do I need to read this? But you have to remember, before Christ, so in, under the old covenant, your physical connection to Abraham was of critical importance. There were people that were physically descended from Abraham. Those are the Jews. And they were the, they were the, the people of God. They were the ones that, would, that were to occupy the promised land, the land of Canaan, which became Israel. Those who were not physically descended from Abraham were non-Jews and outside of the people of God. Now, there were occasional people who made their way in uh, to the people of God because of their faith. And we'll see, actually, that happens here in chapter 6. So people like Ruth, and Rahab, and others. So their faith brought them and aligned them with the people of God, and they actually became part of the, the descendants of, of Christ himself. 
But by and large, the, the goal of the Israelites was to remain physically disconnected from the people outside of Israel. So when Phil hits uh, Ezra 7 through 10 in two weeks, intermarriage is a huge deal. And, and, and this is not a racial thing. You don't, you don't want to interpret it through kind of a modern lens of interracial marriage. It's not interracial marriage uh, in any kind of conventional sense. At the time, the assumption was, and, and for obviously for good reason, the assumption was if you were outside of Israel, you did not worship Yahweh. You did not worship the true God. And so if, if someone married someone outside of Israel, they were marrying someone who had a different God. And the command was to be faithful. You shall have no other gods before me. So it's, it wasn't a racial thing. It was a first commandment thing, being faithful to God himself. Now that's old covenant. New covenant, our ethnicity, our race, it matters because it's part of who we are. And God is collecting all nations and races and, and tribes and tongues and peoples to gather before his throne uh, on the last day. So it matters in that sense, but it does not matter in terms of defining who the people of God are. They're this race and not that race. In the new covenant, it's your faith in Christ. It's you being connected to Christ. That defines the people of God. If you are connected to Christ, you have full access and full participation. If you aren't connected to Christ through faith and repentance, then you have no access. It doesn't matter what your race is. So at this time, however, the reason you have all these lists of people and he was the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, is because you needed to trace yourself back to Abraham. There are no such lists when you get to, uh, when you get to the New Testament except for Jesus himself. We, care, we need that list because Jesus himself needs to be the son of Abraham and the son of David, but no other followers of Christ need to be. So we need to note as well the number of people who returned in chapter 2, verse 64, the whole assembly together was 42,360, which, you know, if you think about the size of our church, you think, oh, that's a lot of people. But you can't think about that. You've got to think about the history of Israel. So as just one example, Second uh, Chronicles 27. So there's a, a scene there where Uzziah is, is, is uh, um, taking account of how large his army is. And he has over 300,000 men in his army. Just Just soldiers. 300,000 men who can actually go to battle. That doesn't count women, children, those who are too old to go to battle. So this is a reduced, this is a remnant. It's, it's, it's a stake in the ground, but it is just a remnant compared to the to older generation of Israel. So they're the ones who go back. These 40,000 people, they get, to, they get to Jerusalem and they begin to build. Chapter three is where they begin to build. And this is where they start with an altar. Uh, they start with an altar and they begin, uh, their first feast is the Feast of Booths. So we're at the, day, it's, it's the seventh month, Day of Atonement. So that's where they start. That's where the, the um, kind of the resurrection of, of Mosaic religion, of Old Testament religion begins with an offering, with an altar. And this is a big deal. You know, this is, this is not, it's not the whole thing. But it's something, you know, it's, 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 it's beginning to become who we were meant to be. That's what's happening there in chapter 3. So in verse 6, when it says the foundation of the temple of the Lord uh, was not yet laid, we know it's, it's a small beginning, it's not, it's not the, the beginning. But then you get to verse 8. They did 
make a beginning, an actual beginning on the temple. Not just the altar, but the temple. They made a beginning. And that was a glorious day. So verses 10 through 13, we want to we wanna read these because this is, a, this is a high moment. You know, in this roller coaster of, of God's people, this is, a, this is one of the peaks. And the language, we're going to hit this in uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, but the, the references, you know, this is a guy who loves music, who loves worship, whoever wrote this. You know, it, it has a very similar resonance to Chronicles, also written by a guy who was really into worship really into music. So verses 10 through 13. So when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. So not just according to the law of Moses, but this is worship according to the chief worshiper of Israel, which is David. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout and when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy. So that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout and the sound was heard far away. That's a great goal, isn't it, for a church? Let's be so loud in our worship that people who are far away can hear it. Well, why the sorrow? Well, that's a, that's a comparison to what the temple used to be. Some people remembered what the temple used to be. And when they saw this foundation Part of them was excited. Yes, Lord, you're doing a new thing. We're excited about that. And then part of them was like, Lord, this is so diminished. This is so small. This seems so irrelevant compared to what it used to be. And so they wept. And Ezra doesn't feel the need to kind of parse out. He just, he's, uh, or the author doesn't feel the need to kind of parse out these two things, just lets them both just sit there. Yes, there was joy and there was sorrow. There was joy and there was sorrow. And that's, that's how it is with the work of God that's being done, isn't it? There's, it's tinged almost always with some joy and sorrow. It's, it's, it's a both and. So that's a high moment. So application for this point, this first point, and, and no, all three points will not be this long, but the first point, it's just helpful to remember that the work the work we're doing and the work we want done, the work of building the church, it begins with God. We need God to stir hearts. And that's true of us individually, isn't it? If, if, he, if a new work is gonna happen in my life, if a new level of obedience and holiness and consecration to him is gonna happen in my life, he needs to stir my heart. It doesn't mean I'm not gonna work. I mean, there, there's people working all over the place in, in Ezra and Nehemiah. However, the beginning of this work is God's stirring hearts. And so we remember that as we're praying for people to be saved. We're remembering that as we parent children. We need the Lord to stir hearts. We're remembering that as we're working through uh, maybe a conflict that seems absolutely impossible. We remember, you are the one who stirs hearts, Lord. We're gonna do the hard work of, of navigating through this conflict. However, Lord, stir hearts, stir hearts. And then another aspect of the work here is 
it is a me thing, but it's also a we thing. It's a me thing. I need to do my part in, in building the church and in, in taking care of my own holiness and obedience. I need to do my part, but it's also a we thing. We don't do it alone. We do it together. Very vivid in Ezra and Nehemiah, just the number of people that are involved in the work. You know, it's, you, it's, it's clearly part of the, uh, the, the author's intent is to show just how involved the entire community was in the work. And the, and the author seems to just revel in that, in that truth. It wasn't just uh, a few key leaders involved. It was all the people. So it's a me thing and it's a we thing. All right, point two, opposition to the work. Our roller coaster takes a dip. So now we're in chapter four. Chapter four, now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of father's houses and said to them, let us build with you. Well, and then conflict ensues. So they're introduced as adversaries. Adversaries of Judah and Benjamin, they're not named. Uh, it's, not, it's not important who they are. It's just important what they're doing. They're opposing the work. And actually, they're pretty successful. So in verse 4, then the people of the land, just, uh, not, not the Israelites, but the people around them, the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So 17 years are going to go by here. So work stops because of this discouragement and then 17 years are going to pass. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of work involved in, in the commentaries on chapter 4. It's, so I'm going to give you what I, what I think is the right view, but there are other views. So work stops for 17 years. I think that would be, that would be a reasonable uh, position to take. But what that means then is you get some curious uh, uh, sources that are involved here in telling the story. So what the, what the author's doing here, and, we, and I say author only because we, we don't really know who exactly wrote it. Uh, could have been Ezra, could have been Nehemiah, we're not sure. Um, uh, could have been uh, someone, well, we're not sure. So, so this author has, is writing from, a, a, obviously, a later perspective, right? All these events have already happened. And so he drops in historical matters that help him to reinforce his point. And so his point here in chapter four is opposition. And so he drops in a couple elements of opposition so that they would, they would in some ways be reminded of, well, two things. One is the seriousness of opposition. It's real and it doesn't end. And then the second thing is, yeah, but God wins. And so he drops these times where yes, there was, there was opposition and yet God wins. And so here's how it works out in action. So verse 5, all the days of Syrah, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So that's the stoppage. But then in verse 6, and in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. Ahasuerus, you might be thinking, wait a minute, that name is familiar. That's the king in, in the book of Esther. So Xerxes, Xerxes is his other name. So verse 6 is talking about Xerxes. And if you recall the book of Esther, yes, there was serious opposition against the Jews in the book of Esther. So in verse 6, you have the entire book of Esther. So think of, that. think of it that way. 
And then you get to verse 7, in the days of Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes, wait a minute, that sounds familiar. Artaxerxes is the king who was, who was reigning with Nehemiah. Artaxerxes is the king when Ezra comes to Jerusalem. That's the king who's in power, the king of Persia who's in power at the time. And so, so uh, Artaxerxes, at this point in his reign, which is, um, there's a letter that's included here, verses 7 through uh, 23. So when this, when this interchange happens with Artaxerxes, Artaxerxes is very opposed to the Jewish work back in Jerusalem. Now we know how the story goes, so we know that Artaxerxes is going to change his mind, and so he's actually going to send the Israelites in chapter seven. So you know, dictators changing their minds—that happens. You know, the whims of dictators change according to God's sovereign purposes, and so in this case, that's what's happening. And it's interesting to kind of reinforce what's happening if you look at verse twelve. So it's quoting a letter from Artaxerxes, and there's a reference there to building the walls. So they are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls. Well, that's what happens in Nehemiah, right? And then in verse 13, now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finish, another reference to the walls. So in verse, or in second half of Ezra and then into Nehemiah, the walls are the issue. So Artaxerxes is going to be at first opposed to that, but then he's going to change his mind and send Ezra and then Nehemiah. Now the other Well, so if you look at verse 5, work ends until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And then you get to verse 24, then the work of the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So that repetition there, stopped until the second year of Darius, stopped until the second year of Darius. It's kind of like him telling you, okay, end of parentheses. You know, verse 5 is an open parentheses. I'm going to tell you a couple things about other kings who also opposed us, and look what happened to them. And then close parentheses of verse, and then he says, okay, back to the storyline, which was in the second year of Darius, work stopped. And then the story proceeds. So what does God do? So this is opposition to the work and God's response. What does God do with this work stoppage? Well, he does let it go for a while. It goes for 17 years. And then God says, okay, it's time. It's time for work to begin again. And so the way God responds to this stoppage is through prophets. He inspires his prophets to speak to his people. And in 5.1, we see two specific prophets, and you might remember these names. Now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. So God raises up these two men, Haggai and Zechariah, and we have books called Haggai and Zechariah. It's those guys and so they prophesy at this time. And that's how God mobilizes his people. He raises up prophets to encourage them. And I'll just give you two, one prophecy from each of these men. This is from Haggai 2. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that 
The treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. That's powerful, isn't it? To read that prophecy aligned with the storyline in Ezra. And then we turn to Zechariah 4. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundations, the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Well, they're encouraged. So they begin to build with, with prophecies like that. And so the work starts up again. There's another, there's another round of opposition. So the, 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 the rebuilding continues, but then there's that drop in the roller coaster. So a letter gets sent to Darius. So we're at a future point now. So a letter gets sent to Darius. And, and actually just... Important note, the, the Jews, you know, it was kind of fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. At this point, once that letter goes back to Darius, they think, you know what, we're just going to keep working while we're waiting on the response from Darius. So last time, this did not go well for us, so we're just going to work through it. And when you get that response, let us know, and then we'll, we'll have a conversation. <clears throat> and we'll finish, I'm going I'm to read uh, the response from Darius, because it's, it's awesome. And you have to think, this is a small, insignificant people in nowhere's land, okay, in Persia, okay? And a letter goes to Darius, who's, he's a bad dude. And so then, well, we'll see what happens. Chapter 6, chapter 6, verses 1 through 12. So then Darius made a decree, because actually what, it, what these guys had said in their letter was, yeah, these Jews keep going on about this, this decree from Cyrus, that, they, that Cyrus actually said to build a temple, that can't be right. Would you please just search the archives? You know, it's, it's a little bit of a lesson there in the common grace of good government. I mean, this is decades. This is decades after that original decree from Cyrus, but they kept the paperwork. Then Darius the king made a decree, and search was made in Babylonia in the house of the archives where the dark documents were stored, and in Akbatana, the citadel that is in the province of Media, a scroll was found. Praise God. A scroll was found this, on which this was written, a record. In the first year of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the king issues, issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt, the place where sacrifices were offered, and let its foundations be retained. Its height shall be 60 cubits and its breadth 60 cubits. With three layers of great stones and one layer of timber, let the cost be paid from the royal treasury. And also let the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that is in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its place. You shall put them in the house of God. And then Darius talks to the guy, Tathani, who had sent the original letter of, of kind of frustration. Now, therefore, Tathani, governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar, Bozani, and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. Let the work on this house of God alone. 
Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province beyond, from beyond the river. And whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil as the priests at Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also, I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house and he shall be impaled on it. (laughs) That's pretty good. Also, I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house and he shall be impaled on it and his house shall be made a dunghill. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree. Let it be done with all diligence. That is awesome. And again, you have to, you have to hear that. This is... This is God stirring the heart of a pagan king for his purposes. Yes, his people are that important. And this is, I mean, just the energy and the the fierceness of that decree just tells you how serious God was to accomplish his purposes. And then you get a great, I realize we're getting short on time here. So we're in the point three now, the dedication of the temple and the partial completion of the work And then in verses 13 through 15, you get this really powerful, um, maybe maybe picture of the synergistic work of God's providence. What is that about? The synergistic work of God's providence. That's the notion that God, God superintends what happens, but he also uses human agents who freely do what they do. It's a synergistic work. And so in Ezra 13, uh, 6, 13 through 15, you know, how does God get done what he wants done? And this is, a, this is a very vivid picture of that. So then, according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bozani, and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered. They built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Edo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. So you have a decree of a pagan king. You have prophecies coming forth from the people of God. You have hard work. I mean, this isn't a kind of a let go and let God. Let's just sit back and watch him kind of magically move timbers and rocks and stones and gold and, and well, poof, temple. Now, these people are working very hard. Every stone that was moved, they moved. So they, they're working. But ultimately, all this happens by the decree of God, by the decree of God, the God of Israel. That's why this is happening. So the decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes All the things that happen in Ezra and Nehemiah will happen, but ultimately it's by the decree of God. He decided, and that is exactly what happened. 
So we skip ahead now. So the temple is finished. And this is, the, this is the, what's called the second temple. So when the temple is destroyed in AD 70, it's this temple. Now throughout its history, it was added to, and it was, it was modified, but it's actually that temple, the temple that we're reading about here that was destroyed in AD 70. So maybe for the phrase second temple Judaism, well, it's the Judaism that aligns with the temple that's being, uh, uh, that was built here and that lasted 500 years. And it's good to remember that, la- that it lasted 500 years because it hasn't existed for 2,000 years. That's just one of those, you know, God saying, you know, in case you missed it, Jesus was really important. He is the big deal. Not, there is no temple any longer that's the big deal. Jesus is the big deal. There's no need for a temple. So according to prophecy, it's destroyed in AD 70, and there has been no temple ever since. But this temple, this temple stood for 500 years. That's a big deal. That's, a, that's just another picture of God's providence and sovereignty. And so we get to, we'll finish with uh, 619 through 22. So Israelite religion, Mosaic religion is being reestablished. So the priests are, are falling into line and the Levites are figuring out, you know, that they're, that they're, in fact, Levites. They trace their lineage back to Levi. The high priests are figuring out who they are. And so Mosaic religion, Old Testament religion is happening according to the word of God. Clearly a moment of revival. But the timing of all this this is, this is another work of the Lord. The timing of all this is such that exactly when the temple's finished, the next feast was the Passover. So remember, the Passover was the, was the feast that was inaugurated when Israel left Egypt. So they left Egypt at the first exodus. And so the second exodus is right now, coming back into the land. They've, they've come out of another uh, captive land of Babylon They've come back to their, the promised land of Israel, of Jerusalem. And so what do they do? They celebrate the Passover. So on the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests and for themselves. And this is important, verse 21, uh, in light of that kind of that separation idea that I mentioned earlier. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and had, and had turned the heart of the king to, of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. So the, the storyline story started. So back in Ezra 1.1, where are they? They are sojourners. They are exiles. They are slaves. They are an oppressed people in Babylon. Obviously, some, not every single one of them were equally oppressed. There were some people living well, certainly. But they were not in their homeland. They were exiles. That's 1.1, Ezra 1.1. When you get to Ezra 6.19-22, worship in the temple is restored. I mean, this, this, the, the, the ascending uh, line there is just powerful. So you, they start exiles, they end as worshipers, and the Lord has done it. And that worship, that brings such glory to God because he's the one who had to make it happen. There's no way they could have made that happen. He had to make that happen, and yet 
there's just joy. I mean, yes, we've got to pay attention to our obedience, and yes, uh, this is all for the glory of God, but we don't want to miss that, the reverberating joy that happens throughout Ezra and Nehemiah. It's a, it's a dominant theme in Ezra and Nehemiah. In Nehemiah 8, there's another revival. So in November, we'll, we'll look at Nehemiah 8. And so you, then this is what we read in Nehemiah 8.10. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our God, sorry, holy to our Lord, and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And in Nehemiah 12, when, the, when that loud worship service happens, it's heard far away, it, actually what it says is their joy. Their joy was heard far away. I mean, let that be a picture of evangelism for us. Our joy is heard far away. As people confront us who are just filled, filled with joy in Christ, that joy will be heard far away in evangelism. Well, in conclusion, it's fitting that the work involved here results in a worshiping community. So all this work and all this sovereign intervention, the result of this is a worshiping community. And we don't want to miss that because that's the work that we're about. So as we commit ourselves to one another, commit ourselves to personal growth, sanctification, what we're, commit, what we're committing to really is building a worshiping community. And the worship is not just the two hours on Sunday morning. The worship is how we live our lives 24-7, everywhere we go, everything we do, every word we speak, every thought we have. All of that is part of true and sincere and faithful worship. So we're building this worshiping community just like they were in Ezra 1-6 through 6 and in Ezra and Nehemiah. And so we saw that that work, this building this worshiping community, it begins with God. We see that it will be opposed, and, and yes, it will be opposed. There's opposition in our own hearts. No, I don't want to obey. No, I don't want to worship. There's opposition by the world around us. No, we won't let you worship. And then there's opposition, even greater and more sinister opposition by the devil himself. So we don't... We don't lose that opposition until we see Jesus face to face, until the new heavens and new earth. Until then, our work of building this worshiping community will be opposed. There'll be moments when it's beautiful and easy, and then a lot of times where it's just hard work. You know, you're going up that hill on the roller coaster. You know, that's when the motor, you know, the motor kicks in, right? When you're going up the hill on the roller coaster, the motor kicks in. Otherwise, you're not making it to the top. That's where the hard work is. And we get to the top, you just coast. So it begins with God, it will be opposed, and there's this sense in which there's a now and not yet to it. So we will experience beautiful times of worship and obedience and success and favor, fruitfulness. But there'll be a lot of times we're aware of this is the not yet. There's a day coming and I cannot wait for that day. You know, the Maranatha prayer that Chris echoed earlier in the service. Come Lord Jesus, come. So what should we do in response to Ezra 1 through 6? Number one, you know, this mention of the temple, uh, the temple of Christ, the temple of the church, the temple of our bodies. So please hear in all that language an invitation by the Lord to come into his presence boldly and without fear, total access. Now, the key is you cannot do that apart from Christ. 
If you believe in Jesus, if you've turned away from being Lord of your life to turning to him as the Lord of your life, you believe he is who he says he is, well, then you're in Christ. And if you're in Christ, then you have that total free access. His perfections and his crucifixion are the reason you can boldly enter the presence of God without any fear. But hear that. Hear that invitation to come into God's very presence. And then number two, read Ezra, Nehemiah. So we have a couple weeks now until till we read, uh, till Phil preaches Ezra 7 through 10. Maybe try to finish Ezra before then, two weeks. Next week, Craig Cabanis is preaching uh, on the mission of God. <clears throat> so we have a couple weeks to catch up. But read Ezra, Nehemiah. Let, let these sermons not just kind of land on, uh, on, you know, have some context for the sermons as, as they're preached. That's number two. And then number three, get involved in a ministry team. If you think about what a ministry team is in our church, so if you go to cornerstoneapex.org forward slash serve, there's a big long list of ways to get involved in the church, different ministry teams in the church. Cornerstoneapex.org forward slash serve. Big long list of teams and ways to get involved, express interest in those teams. All this happening is workers are coming together and they're working on behalf of this church, this worshiping community to make it stronger, to make it healthier, to make it better, more fruitful. And you need to do that, and we need you to do that. So you need to do that to grow. Uh, without service, you're just going to get stunted in your growth as a Christian. And we need to do that as a church. The only way that our church is going to kind of grow to maturity, grow to full maturity, is if we're all doing our part in this endeavor of creating this worshiping community. So hear the invitation to come into the very presence of God. Read Ezra and Nehemiah and join a, join a ministry team if you haven't yet. Let me close with Ezra 3, 10 through 12, and then I'll pray. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. I'll stop there, actually. Father, we declare that you indeed are good. Your steadfast love endures forever. And we thank you, Lord, that we are wrapped up into the promises you made to Israel because we are in Christ. Thank you, Lord, that your steadfast love will never be removed from us. And thank you, Lord, that we do get to experience even now your goodness. And we pray that as a church, as we mature and grow as a worshiping community, we would experience more and more of your goodness. Father, let our joy in you be heard far away. In our households, and our neighborhoods, throughout the entire earth, let our joy in you be heard. Somehow, Lord, use us so that the glorious gospel, which, is, which speaks grace and peace to sinners, grace and peace to sinners would be heard. Let that joy be heard by others, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.